everyone. Welcome to episode 137 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode features a landscape photographer from the United Kingdom, Paul Reefer. Paul uses Phase 1 Digital Backs as his camera of choice and produces some absolutely stunning work. I was first drawn to Paul through a really fantastic blog post that he wrote over the last summer entitled, Photographers, Instagrammers, Stop Being So Damn Selfish and Disrespectful. If that doesn't catch your attention, I don't know what will. Um, Paul and I had a really wonderful conversation and explored several interesting topics this week, and I'm not going to go into detail on those, but just trust me, this is one of the better podcasts. It's long, but it's really fantastic, and I had a great time. So stay, stay in there and hang in because it's really worth it. All right, and over on Patreon this week, Paul explains why he uses Capture One as his raw editor of choice. Well, before we get started, I did want to remind you that this is the last week that you can take advantage of our special offer over on Patreon. We have partnered with Phil Monson to give all patrons at the $20 a month level a new Leave It Better Than You Found It hat. Anyone supporting the podcast at that level or higher on December 6th will get a new hat of their choice. So you can support both the podcast and the awesome work of Phil uh, by contributing. Thanks. All right, well, let's get to the show. All right, well, Paul Reefer, well, it's Reifer, but Reefer sounds way cooler, if, if I'm not mistaken, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> and there's a whole story behind that. <laughs> yeah, at school you're gonna do a lot better with a name like Reefer. So. <laughs> for for hopefully obvious reasons, but uh yeah. <laughs> Well man, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. I've been trying to get you on the show for quite a while. Cool. It's good to see yeah. you. Awesome. Yeah. So uh where are you talking to us from? Uh, right now at home. Um, so I live on the very, very south coast of the UK, uh, a place called Dorset. Um, it's where it's, I basically live in the old Olympic village where they did the sailing events. Um, so out of one window, I, if I did have perfect eyesight, I could probably just about reach to France, um, with vision and the, and the other, the other window is up north. Um, so that's sort of where I'm based. I say based, um, in reality, Last year, I had 287 nights away from home. Wow. So um, I, we actually worked out one of my friends, a, a general manager of a hotel, is that I've stayed in hotels for longer than he has last year. Um, <laughs> well, so yeah, I have, a, I have a wonderful view at home that I see very, very rarely. But yeah, yeah, I'm here right now, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So maybe for people that aren't familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so I well, live with my girlfriend, um, Vic, um, uh, for as long as I can remember. Um, I always sort of used to take photos and had a camera and whatever, but in, in general terms, um, it wasn't really a career to start with. So I went down an IT track and went into a big corporate and worked with lots of companies, um, some billion-dollar companies and international ones and whatever. Um, I was doing that all the way through uh, my 20s and so on. Um, and then uh, 
it's funny when you're 20 you think that at 30 you're going to have a midlife crisis and then when you go past 30 you think at 40 you're going to have a midlife crisis and then I'm getting towards 40 now and thinking that 50 I'm going to have my midlife crisis but I think I've actually had three already um, <laughs> so uh, one of them said okay you, you're, you're sat at work um, doing all this paperwork stuff and wondering about going out on the weekend to take photographs um, you're never out taking photographs wondering about the paperwork at work so you probably have this around the wrong way um, so we, uh, I sort of came out of corporate life, um, and went smack bang into photography, um, and put all our energy into that. Um, but yeah, in terms of sort of background, I grew up on the South coast, um, where I live now. Um, life has a strange habit of returning back to your roots. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, I've lived, uh, I've lived in Ireland, I lived in the US, I've lived in Shanghai for three and a half years, um, I've lived all around the UK, um, and eventually came back home. And effectively, I have always traveled. So with, with a mix of I've always taken photographs with sort of pocket cameras and whatever, and always traveled. And I got to see a lot of the world with the, the um, industry that I was in before, um, sort of decided about 10 years ago, it was time to look at making that switch and switch to doing photography instead of boring paperwork. Yeah. Which is odd because amazingly photography actually results in a lot of boring paperwork, which <laughs> I didn't realize at the time, but yeah, okay, I, I'm practiced at that, so we're all good. I was going to say like have you seen that um it's like a meme where it's like uh oh what my friends think I do and what I really yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's like it, it is exactly that. Professional photographer, you're just in front of your computer like sending invoices and editing photos. Yeah. Yeah. I, funnily enough, I actually, I, I damaged my back um, well, about four or five weeks ago um, through photography, but, but I thought it was because I was carrying sort of 45 pounds of kit on my back um, and saw a chiropractor about it. And, and she said, yeah, you know, the kit doesn't help for sure. Um, but it's probably been done by sitting at a desk. Right. It's probably not the trekking around, around mountains and rooftops and stuff. It's probably more sitting at a desk and doing the paperwork. <laughs> Pops, so yeah yeah it's funny at work that at sucks. my job at work i have a standing desk and i almost never i'm never sitting down so it's, it's kind of nice you know i um yeah so when that that happened I, I had to do a flight it was so bad i had to do a flight in a wheelchair um, oh, wow. a month ago that was then and that was one hell of an experience as, as an eye opener and it i was talking about this with with my girlfriend because um it it doesn't really work if you're not in pain but I wish everyone could have the experience of going through an airport in a wheelchair because honestly, it sucks. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I was always one of those people that would burst through the airport as fast as possible, you know, get out of my way and, and whatever else. Um, and, and you'd see the guys in the wheelchair and, and you know, they, they're always sort of first in the plane and they, they look quite chilled. You have no idea how much pain that person that looks quite chilled is in. Um, and, and having done it once... I never want to do that again. And I, I have a huge amount of respect for the people that do because it's like, whoa. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and after that, I have literally gone onto Amazon and just filled up a shopping list of every single ergonomic X and ergonomic Y that I need. So <laughs> new desk coming soon. I've got a new weird skeletal chair and all this, all this other stuff. But um, yeah, that was a bit of a, a bit of a fun one. Yeah, no doubt. Um, Anyway, so yeah, the um, the, the paperwork. Um, yeah, I'm trying to trying to reduce that. So I might I might actually look at the standing desk option as well. It's a fair point. But yeah, so that's that's sort of yeah, brief history. Um, pretty pretty boring corporate life um, expired and and started a 
slightly more exciting life of traveling around the world and taking pictures to show people. Um, was was there was there like a, a catalyst or a single moment that caused you to do that, or was it something that you kind of planned over time? It, um, I think so. The, the actual transition, um, it, it, you know, there's that. Um, it's not a meme, but it's a it's a statement someone made many years ago about you know how do you make a, a small amount of money where you start off as a photographer with a large amount of money, um, and that that sort of resonated with me at the time which was if i wanted to switch from one to the other um i had to be prepared effectively to not earn for quite a while mm-hmm. um so i think there, there was a catalyst which was yeah i enjoy doing this more than i enjoy doing what i was doing in the day job um for sure and that was the that was the impetus and actually my, my girlfriend sort of said you know you're, you're, you're miserable you're, we're earning a huge amount of money don't get me wrong but you know you're, you're working 14 hour days and you're miserable um, so now I work 60 hour days and I'm happier. Um, <laughs> but, um, so it would, you know, that, that was sort of the catalyst as it were, but actually the, the, the process that we went through was if I'm going to switch to doing this as a career and as an income, this has to actually be considered. This can't just be, you know, one of the, the floaty artist things where I'll live in a shed and hope that everything's okay. Um, because I, I didn't particularly want that life. I wanted the, the nice life that I was accustomed to, uh, but doing something I enjoyed. So from the very beginning, we sort of said, you know what, um, it's going to be painful for a couple of years, um, sort of building up a client list, building up portfolio, basically hemorrhaging cash to try and get um, mm. proof that I knew what I was doing. Um, and I, I'd say with... 60 or 70 percent of planning but a fair chunk of luck that turned around in a couple of years and it was it was a good move um i've had friends since ask me you know i'm thinking about going into photography full-time um what do you what do you think and i've I've had that conversation around be prepared that it's it's a hard slog um don't think you're going to be an instant um success overnight whatever and i'm so i'm far from that myself um but we're sort of in that place of I'm now comfortable um, with not only my career, but also lifestyle and whatever else. Um, but that's taken a long time to do. And you know, don't, don't jump in blindly, as it were. It's, it's going to be tough. Yeah. I'm curious, like, um, did you, like, what was your approach to thinking through how you were going to earn money at photography, especially in landscape and travel? Because obviously – you know, there's only yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's only so many things you can do, and and it's it's probably changed yeah. quite a bit in the last ten years too. So, like, what was kind of, it has? Yeah, um, I mean, I so originally I there's a there's a weird sort of backstory which, which I won't go into too much, but um, originally I actually learned um, to shoot models, um, so we were doing um, lookbooks and stuff for for agencies. Um, and I learned about lighting in that. I learned artificial lighting, um, studio flash, and, and so on. Um, and I, I got to doing it, but I, and, and this isn't of any disrespect to those that really enjoy doing it. It just wasn't for me. I mm-hmm. didn't enjoy it. Sure. I found it quite boring. Um, I was missing the outdoors part of it. I was missing the, the exploring. Because this is the funny thing. Although my end product is a, a picture, which is a snapshot of a moment in time out wherever I was, it's the getting there bit that's the fun part. It's the finding it that's the fun part. Um, mm. And <laughs> with, with model photography, I just didn't have that because it was 
you know, standard look, standard style. Um, and, and you almost get into this place of they came to you because they liked the picture you did with that model before. So you ended up just replicating the same stuff. Right. Um, so with that, I was like, you know what? No, I, I want to do the, I, I, I can do both, but I really want to do the, the travel and commercial stuff. Looked around at the people that I knew um and you know from my background funnily enough i knew a lot of um luxury hotel managers um ah. so you know had had the conversation about hey if i uh if i wanted to come and practice some stuff with you and, and do a couple of shoots and whatever and you and your team and your property and whatever can we do that um and a few of them sort of yeah not a problem um and that sort of got me started because it, it effectively gave me a portfolio that worked mm. um so and then again, going back to that, that thing around, you almost got to accept the fact that you, you're going to have to do the internship, um, no matter how old you are when you start. But there's there's that element of it that you've just got to go through. And it, you know, as I say, luckily that worked out. Um, I know people that have done similar and tried similar, and it didn't, unfortunately, for them. But um, mm-hmm. for me, it was it was that. And then it's funny once you start seeing that you can do something pretty well it then becomes quite exciting to carry on doing it. You know, at the beginning, you're, you're worried that everything's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's, there's a certain amount of pressure. I mean, especially now, we'll, we'll go out to a hotel um, and we'll shoot their property for you know, two or three days. The weather isn't always perfect. You've got to have you know, your plan B, your plan C, your plan D. Um, you've got a lot of pressure on, you know, every restaurant manager in in a property is going to want their um, amazing view and whatever captured and all this sort of stuff. And you've got two minutes to do each one. Um, but you start out with a real fear that you don't really know what you're doing. Like, this, is, <laughs> this, is kind of, this is kind of worrying and I might screw it up. Um, when you get beyond that and you get to the place of, actually, I do know what I'm doing. I am, I'm okay at this. I can I can pull this out of the bag. Um, it starts being fun again. Mm-hmm. And what I, it, it's funny, in the perfect world, obviously everyone would start the career they want to do earning loads of money. What I would say is the benefit I had of going through that process of working with um, people effectively for free um, took all that pressure off. Hmm. It was actually quite. It was actually quite fun to begin with, because it didn't matter if I screwed up. <laughs> right. Um, because you know, what are you going to? I'll, I'll give you a refund. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> right. But um, it, it sort of got to that point of you know, okay, so I've, I've done my practice stuff. I now am pretty confident I know what I'm doing. And then then it gets back to being, right, this is fun. I can call the shots now. I can decide where I want to go. I can decide the companies that I want to approach and work with. And, you know, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But, um, yeah, in, in general, it, it is possible to turn it back to fun. But there is that little bump of pain to go through first. Sure. You know, it's interesting. Something you said earlier struck me. Uh, it's it's so fascinating because you, you do hear lots of stories of um, – people who have very they have very solid work and if you compare their work to other people who are successful or doing really well it's it's on par and they've all they've tried to do similar marketing things and they've tried to do all the same things that the person who made it did but they didn't make it and it's really interesting i hear the story kind of over and over again that there's kind of an element of luck and also just timing and circumstance um yeah yeah for sure yeah <laughs> i mean one one thing it's, it's funny one thing i i have found over the years um and you know with, with full transparency we wasted a lot of money in our marketing early on um 
for for the for the and actually when I look back at it now, the obvious reason, um, which was we were looking at what other photographers did to market, and we were looking at what other people in the industry did to attract um, their clients or whatever, and. You, you start, and I wouldn't say copying, but you start emulating some of those sure. um, tactics without knowing whether they work. Right. Because you're, you're, you're effective, and I see this quite a lot now when we, we do a lot of workshops with people, and as part of it, we cover some of the business aspects of it. And you know, people say, oh, I want to I market like this person. And I say, okay, why? Well, he's successful. Is he? <laughs> do you know? So have you, have you got his books in front of you? You know, define successful. So if successful is... 10 million likes on Instagram, then yeah, okay, great. Um, if successful is he can afford to buy dinner tonight, I don't know. Right. And also, um, like, what are you and, not seeing that they're doing that they're not? Yeah, of course. Right. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of stuff that's not published online. So, and I, I find it quite a lot where people are, they're trying, they, what they're seeing is successful out there um, is other photographers and they try and emulate it. And what, what we found the result of doing that was our marketing was great at attracting other photographers, <laughs> um, which, yeah, that's that's one of the dumbest things we've ever done. Um, so you know you've got to look at instead of just looking around the market and, and looking at who else is out there doing well in in quotes, um, start looking at who is it that you want to target and how do how do you talk to them? Who do they work with? Who do they talk to? How do they talk? Um, you know there are some groups and certainly some of the travel companies and whatever that we approached early on. I look back in hindsight, they were never going to work with us because our, our style is different. Our, our way of approaching shoots was different. Um, you know, they were faking blue skies and everything and all that stuff like that. We, we tried not to do that. Um, so, you know, but by doing this, oh, I've got to get that client because that photographer um, has just done well with them and I like what they're doing. That, that doesn't work. Um, you've, you've got to find your own little niche um, and then start approaching partners and customers that that kind of fit with that niche um rather than trying to be a jack of all trades as it were Mm -hmm. have you found that your experience in the corporate world has uh kind of aided you in your process as starting your own business as a photographer um yeah um I, i some things that photographers find very difficult um, and frustrating, I find quite, I still find them frustrating, don't get me wrong, but I find them quite easy. Um, so, you know, I always marvel at when the photographer says to me, you know, I got screwed by this company because they did X, Y, and Z with my images. And I say, okay, so what was in the contract? contract. <laughs> oh, that's a contract. So, oh, my God. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and, and that's sort of like the basics that I remember as building blocks from my old um, my old world. Um, uh, they're the things that I just... I wouldn't think twice about. Um, I, you know, I don't think twice about invoices. It's, it's funny the, the number of photographers that give their stuff away, they give their work away because they're proud um, that someone wants their work. Um, and don't get me wrong, I'm very proud when someone wants my work, but I have something that you don't have, and that comes at a price. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I remember learning early on from a, a funny enough, a friend of mine was, you know, don't be afraid to ask for reimbursement for your skills. Um, and you know, coming from a business background, you, you actually, I'm probably quite cold in comparison to a lot of people in the industry, but you've, you've got to do that. Um, you've got to have some value in yourself and you've got to stick to it. So I'd, I'd say it helps. Um, it, it doesn't help when I try and do something that's just for fun. Mm-hmm. 
because there's still that little corner in my head that says, okay, what's the business case? <laughs> um, which is really, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I suppress it as much as I can, but, but it is always there. Like, okay, so what's the output? Uh, what's, what's the outcome from this? Um, which I'm sure lots of people that are listening to this are like, oh my God, this guy has not a creative bone in his body. Um, but, but in reality, there's a mix. Um, and the, the fact that I couldn't be creative in my past life was the reason why I switched across. Um, but it has meant that I've carried across a few sort of, I guess, principles that that probably always stick with right. me. Well, so you, you've kind of, it seems like for the last several years, you've made a conscious decision to, to use medium format digital, um, phase one, if I'm not mistaken, what, yep. uh, what was that transition like and kind of what, what was your motivation to make that switch, knowing that it's a pretty steep investment? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's actually not only is it a steep investment, it's a steep learning curve. I remember when it arrived, um, and I realized that actually, for all my years of using a camera, I didn't know how to use a camera. <laughs> um, so that was a, yeah, and, and actually, I say it's a steep learning curve. At the time, it was. Now that the new systems and whatever are, are so much more alike to a, a DSLR that it's um, it's a lot easier to transition. But um, I mean, it, unfortunately, phase one won't um, won't like me saying this, unfortunately, because it it is about more than just resolution. But for me personally, that initial switch was resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, it was we had a couple of clients that wanted some ultra high. Um, resolution prints. Um, we had an airline that wanted to cover their head office in a wrap with an image of a city. Um, we had some cruise ships that wanted to place uh, images of city skylines um, in a restaurant uh, on board, or in restaurants on board as it is now, um, where they were about 30 feet wide and they wanted them sharp to be sat no more than four feet away from them. Oh, wow. Um, and, and to be honest, even, even, I mean, this is a few, quite a few years back, but even now with 151 megapixels, the reality is you're not going to get that even today, mm-hmm. but you can get it much better, um, obviously when you're, when you're in the medium format world. Um, so it, it sounds brutal, but it was business-based. It was, um, I believe, and it was a leap of faith, don't get me wrong, but I believe, um, if we switch to this kit, um, I'll be able to say yes to some more jobs that previously I'd sort of have to shy away from. Um, and then it, it, it's funny as a result of getting that equipment, um, my shooting changed quite a lot. Um, I, I changed the way that we approach stuff. Um, I slowed down, um, a, an awful lot. Um, and there's no real reason why, cause it's not like you're using film. So, you know, there's no, there's no danger <laughs> of, oh my God, I right. burned the whole memory card. Um, but but I, at the time, I mean, this was what, 2012, 13, something like that. Um, and it was 80 megapixels at the time. And and still on a very good MacBook Pro at the time, you load up an 80 megapixel RAW and it was still not fast. Um, so it did make you think. It did make you think, well, I'm not going to worry about editing 10 versions mm-hmm. of this. I'm just going to find the one that's best. Um, and then you switch to, well, okay, well, then rather than shooting 10 versions of it, well, I'm going to shoot the one that's best. Um so you you do you do sort of slow down quite a lot in workflow. You you become very 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 picky about um, color rendition and sharpness and focus because at Resign we're now shooting on 151 meg um, at that resolution. Any minor mistake, I can see it. Oh yeah. Um, 
And you know, even if there's a tiny bit of wind on a on a tripod based camera and it's just fluttering a tiny little bit, um, if I've got anything longer than say eighty mil lens, um, you're going to see it. Yep. So it, you become quite obsessive over the the tiny details. Um, in part because you know that the output format is going to lead people to be very obsessive. <laughs> um, it's quite you know, it's, it's kind of cool. We we did a, um, a campaign for a, a memory um, company. And we produced this, uh, it was a shot of the New York skyline. And it was a wide shot, don't get me wrong. It was, it was taken, I think, 40 mil on medium format, which is a lot wider, mm-hmm. 35 mil equivalent. Mm-hmm. And um, I was about to send the image off um, for them to, to use. And I just happened to zoom in on one of the windows. And there was, um, there was a couple um, who were... Um, <laughs> when, when a mummy and a daddy love each other very much... Uh, <laughs> So I, I, I learned two things at that exact moment. One was um, check every window in a skyline when you're shooting ultra high res, and two, when you check into a hotel, shut the curtains. Um, <laughs> you never because know. Because there may be someone with a medium format camera on a rooftop somewhere. That's right. You never know who's um, got a 150 megapixel camera pointed at your yeah. window. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, honestly, the the flip side to that is so. Yes, resolution was the the steer for it, but you know, the dynamic range I have in those medium format backs is phenomenal. So, um, you know, the, the ability to capture the the detail in the dark shadows and the bright highlights at the same time is is unsurpassed. Um, you know, I can pull up stuff that looks like it's five stops underexposed, and it's perfectly fine. It's in there, and that's not to say it, it's it's a recovery for your failures, as it were. But there are some situations where, especially if you're doing nighttime city stuff, you know the bright lights of cars and billboards versus the dark shadows. Um, there isn't a filter that, that fixes that, so that dynamic range that it gives you is is phenomenal mm-hmm. for that. Um, plus, yeah, you can print it as big as you like, and and actually you can crop too. So we we get that where. Because the base image is so large, if a company says, actually, I just want that section of it, I can still blow that up to a billboard size. Um, no issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's quite a few things that that turned out to be very beneficial from an initial decision of, I just need to print big. Yeah. Are you, um, uh, are you 100% shooting medium format or do you still have a smaller, lighter kit for other situations? So um, from a marketing point of view, I only ever shoot medium format because in part because I'm a phase one ambassador. So of course I only ever shoot medium format. <laughs> right, um, right, right. However, um, however, and, and to be fair, you know, I, I work very closely with the guys at phase and, and we talk about some of this stuff um, quite a lot around. There are some things that every camera and every single camera in the world has challenges with. Um, so I remember, you know, when I used to I shot concerts for a little while with a Canon and it was awful with red light. Mm-hmm. Um, it would, it would overexpose the reds. Whereas the guys with the um, Nikon kit would be um, scratching their heads when it was blue lights joining directly into the camera. And so every camera has got its little nuances. Um, the medium format stuff is fantastic for, you know, big landscapes, cityscapes, in-studio uh, model shots and whatever. Would I take it to a wedding to try and shoot 10 frames a second? Absolutely not. <laughs> right. um, would I take it to a concert in low light? Absolutely not. You know, high ISO, it's, the, the kit's getting better at high ISO, um, but it's not designed to do that. And, and I don't think they want it to be the jack of all trades in, in that sense. It, it needs to be good and great at what it can do very well. So, Effectively, I supplement that with a, with my Canon kit. Okay, okay. So I have my Phase One kit for everything that I want to do commercially. Um, that you know, that's that's my business. 
Um, and in the background for things like, you know, if I want to go out at night and shoot some stars and stuff like that, then yeah, we'll take a Canon with a random Samyang lens or whatever else that people want to use. Sure, um, sure. So I still, I still have that mix, but okay. um, yeah, predominantly for anything that we effectively, anything we make money from is going to be shot on medium format. Right. Nice. Nice. Well, I want to switch gears because um, gear is fun, but uh I think people start to fall asleep after a while when they when we talk yeah. gear. So, um, <clears throat> so one of the uh, one of the reasons why I was initially drawn to you and your photography was, I don't and I don't remember where where I saw it, but um, you had written an article this summer on your website, um, and it was titled "Photographers." Instagrammers, stop being so damn selfish and disrespectful. Yep. And uh, I'm just going to read a, a quick quote from from your from your article, and then I want you to kind of describe to the listeners kind of what you saw and what motivated you sure. to uh, to write it. So, quote: uh, These are people so obsessed with their own sense of self importance for the sake of a few instant likes on their social media profile that they find it perfectly acceptable to trespass, steal, disrespect the workers and their land, all in the name of influencing. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that sounds quite brutal when it's just taken as one, as one sentence. Um, but but actually, yeah, I, I, in fact, I remember thinking at the time, um, slightly harsher words than that um, when, I, when I first sort of got back. So basically... Um, it's it's a well known thing, you know. Lots of lots of people have picked up on this. Um, I happen to be in France um, this summer. We we tend to go to France for a bit of a chill out and sort of switch off and detox, as it were, for a week or two each year. Um, and this time was the first time I just thought I'm going to take my camera. Um, we're going to go to Provence and we'll just you know, have a look at the fields. Um, and we got there and it was lavender season. Um, and I knew that lavender season was was pretty popular. But what I didn't know and what I wasn't expecting was just hordes and hordes of not just tourists but actually extremely disrespectful tourists um people that were trashing the land that these lavender fields were were obviously um, part of um you know and I, I sort of sit there and think so i'm looking at it and thinking i don't want to get my camera out because i don't want to be part of this movement um and it, it's a mix so it's it wasn't just instagrammers there were also pro photographers there well i say pro they had all the pro gear um there were amateur photographers there there were people that were just stopping by um but you know in valensol which is the um the plateau where all the lavender fields are um they've got to a point now where this year it was actually after i wrote that article um they actually went on a load of tv interviews with the farmers and stuff like that because they, they've got to the point where tourism is breaking them um so while it started out great, you know, they'd advertise and say, hey, come and have a look at our lavender fields. Because, And again, going back to my history, because they're a business. Right. Um, you know, it's not come and look at my lavender fields and you can trample all over them because we want you to. It's because I want to sell you some lavender. Right. Um, and some lavender oil and, and all this other stuff. But while it started out that way, that's absolutely not what's happening now. So now they're being used as a backdrop for these, let's call them rather cliché, um, shots. I mean, I, I obviously I was born at the wrong time because apparently there was a time where everyone used to walk through a field with a white flowing dress and a straw hat looking into the distance, and that's what people are trying to recreate now um, on mass. But when you look at that from the outside, and you just, just sort of take a step back and you see a field where 
there are tens and tens, you know, to some points when we drove through hundreds of people trying to do their own little shot because they've seen it somewhere else. Um, and I, I get that the reason that they're there is because they like the look of that shot. So great. Um, let's try and emulate it. But at the point where you are trampling over the farmer's ground, you are climbing over fences that say, please keep out. Um, you're picking the stuff out of the ground. So you're picking lavender out of the ground for use in your shop and then discarding it later. Mm-hmm. That's his money. That's, you know, that's, that's that farmer's property. Um, and that particular night, um, the farmer actually, well, the farmer and his workers went out to the tree. There's a very famous tree in Balanso. It looks a little bit like a heart shape um, in the distance. And it happens to be on the top of a hill. So it's a mecca for uh, that shot. Um, and they went up there and they hung a huge, great big banner that said, you know, please respect our work. And I found it interesting that it was in English. Um, so, you know, the French are very, very proud of their, their language and their history and so on. Um, but they've obviously realized that the audience that they're trying to mm-hmm. discourage are English speaking. Um, mm-hmm. But there's an international audience for sure. Um, and you just saw it. It was just almost desperation of like, if, if you're not going to listen to me, if you're not going to get off my land, if you're not going to stop taking my products, then I'm going to ruin your photograph. Um, and I sort of looked at it and thought, you know what? 10 out of 10. Um, for actually taking a stand because this wasn't just, you know, stopping off at a field because it looks beautiful and and taking a photo because you happen to find it. This was people following geotags to the exact spot to park their car. And if someone else was parked in that place, then they would just block the road because that was where they needed to stand. Um, And then there was one car we saw, they, they opened the back of the car and out came a rail of wardrobe changes. You're like, seriously? Oh, yeah. Um, and you know, they, I, I don't have an issue at all from a, from a personal point of view of someone enjoying the view. Um, but what seems strange is the, the view now seems to be 90% you and then a little bit of background. Mm-hmm. Um, and that background now is being trashed, um, in the name of getting the shot that's going to you know, influence apparently X number of tens of thousands of people. Um, and the, the sad thing for me, I, I, I get Instagram, don't get me wrong, I get Facebook, I get, get we're on all of those platforms. Um, but I also know that when we put a photograph up and we get a load of people say, oh, I like that, I like that, I like that, that like lasts about four seconds. Mm-hmm. And then it's on to the next one. And then it's on to the next one and on to the next one. So as a, as a global population, we are ruining the places around the world um, that, that are amazing. They are epic to explore. They, they should be shared and appreciated in the name of getting you know, four seconds worth of attention from 20,000 people. <laughs> um, and that, that to me was just really sad. It was, it was just a sort of breaking point for me of this is a, this is a bad place to be and, and we're heading into it you know, full steam. Ahead. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I hear, I hear these stories, from all over the world and I can't help to feel like it's, it's almost like an epidemic. Um, and yeah, and it's, uh, I've heard other people talk on other podcasts that, well, it's a very small minority of people or photographers that are doing this. And let's, let's talk about, um, the good things instead of the bad. And it's like, I, I get that, but also, you know, there's a, there's a huge current of, 
whatever this is that's it's it's just having a huge um impact not only on uh you know photography in general but also just uh locations are getting totally jacked up they are they are and I, I, so where I, I it's actually funnily enough i've i've had that article in my mind for mm. probably 6 or 7 years sure um because i started noticing it a long time ago and you know, almost to, to put the disclaimer up, a hundred percent without fail, I am very, very aware that I am equally part of that problem. So yeah. this is the irony with what we put up online is I, I'm also part of that industry. So, you know, my job, I get paid for taking photos right. that make people <laughs> want to go to places. So I, I, you know, don't get me wrong. I get it. I, I get the irony in my statement, but... Um, and this is where the, there's the big but. So there are two sort of pillars that, that I will always stand by. One is um, if I'm exploring a place, I'm exploring a place. I want to go and see that place. I want to see what it's about. I want to see why people are attracted to it. I want to want to get to know a place. And sometimes that means we go off the um, off the standard um, routes that everyone does and we go exploring um, sort of off map, as it were, um, not off trail, different thing. Um, but um, so some of that results in that, but some of it is, you know, if I take, for example, Mesa Arch. So we, I, I did a shot of Mesa Arch many years ago, as many people did at the time. I've never heard so many clicks and beeps at the point of sunrise um, as I did that morning. I've also never heard so many tuts and angry sort of scowling noises towards um, people without cameras that just wanted to go there and see the sunrise. But the photographers sort of had this thing of, you know, what, what on earth are you doing here if you don't have a camera in your hand? Get mm-hmm. out. Sort of That was the feeling that it had. Um, and then the second the sunrise had happened, the second that that initial starburst had gone from the horizon, I was sat there and, and it was, we were sat there for quite some time um, just looking at the sunrise. And I happened to look behind me. Everyone had gone. Not one person was there. And I was like, how sad is that? That, that we got to a place where we're recording things that we actually didn't experience. And, you know, that, those those images will go home and people will talk about how amazing the sunrise was. Was it? Do you remember it? Do you know? Because <laughs> you weren't there. You were looking through a viewfinder the whole time. Um, so that's sort of one pillar, which is, you know, at least experience the place. The second is, you know, don't do bad things. Don't damage things. Don't don't ruin the world in the process of, of getting you know, your shot or your picture in a in a field or whatever. Um, in part because other people might want to enjoy it after you, but in part it's just the wrong thing to do. Right. Um, you know, we're, we're trashing our planet enough without going to extreme lengths to make it even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, which is which is the feeling that I get. Um, and I, I picked up in that article as well um, at one point about um, – so from my, again, history, so the, where I live on the south coast, um, we had a helicopter base and search and rescue base and whatever. And I, I remember as a kid growing up, whenever you heard the helicopter go out at night, that was a bad thing mm. because it meant that someone needed rescuing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I, I, I've always had that in me that whenever you sort of hear a helicopter go up, it's like, ooh, uh-oh. Um, and I then see things like people dancing on the icebergs in the Yokosalon Lake in, in Iceland, you know, where there are huge signs up there saying, A, please don't dance on them or stand on them. B, there is a danger of death. 
and see, they actually got to a point um, a couple of years ago, they started putting signs up saying, because of you, our local people risk their own lives. Right. Because someone's got to save you. If that, well, they don't have to. <laughs> but, you know, so most people are, are going to want to try. So not only are you putting yourself in danger, you're also putting others at risk. And, and to me, that's just, that's not okay. Well, I think there's a... With the advent of social media, there's a there's a, an additional risk in that, especially if you have a large following and you're sharing photos of yourself doing that, you're gonna you're gonna have other people who want to do that exact same thing. Yeah, and it's well, and and get do, go one further. Which right, is what happens now? Yeah, as well. take take it up a notch because um, they want to outdo each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what's interesting is you know there's lots of big name photographers that are that are doing this, and you see it on Instagram all the time, and um, you, I don't know, like you try to have a peaceful conversation with them and they get super defensive. Like, why do you care what I do? And it's like, I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to tell you what not to do, but like, yeah. I don't think you understand that you are having a bigger impact than what you see on the surface. Yeah. And uh, there's a, um, oh, there's an account on Instagram that I, started looking at it's funny you know, i'm finding things on instagram about how bad instagram is um, <laughs> um there's these um gray jays in certain there's like a lake in canada i can't remember which, which lake it is but um it's become so popular on instagram because there's these very tame gray jay birds um that if you put your hand out with some food and it, it comes up to your hand and it feeds from it so everyone wants that photo of them feeding a bird in front of this turquoise blue lake and don't get me wrong the pictures look stunning but the the rangers and the environmental guys and whatever have pointed out that those birds are meant to be wild. So if they get used to feeding from humans during the summer, in the winter when the humans aren't around, they die and they literally die. Yeah. So this one account, I think it's Instarect or something. Yeah, um, Instarect made, made a point. Yeah, they made a point of actually contacting someone that said, that, and it wasn't rude. It was, you know, by the way, the photo that you've put up, um, please be aware that what you're showing people to do is actually very dangerous for the birds and, and so on. And they just got uh, blocked and abused back and whatever else. Like, seriously, guys, they, these people are trying to help. Um, and it's just met with a, either a brick wall or it's met with just hard abuse back. Mm-hmm. I think I think our conversation is really timely because uh, I think just yesterday Instagram announced that they are going to experiment with removing yeah. the likes like that you can see on other yeah. people's photos. And I know that they've kind of launched this in other parts of the world already, but um, man, to, I don't yeah. know, the, 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 lead, the lead designer for Instagram posted it on Twitter and um, you should just read the comments from the, the quote abuse. unquote influencers. Like, yeah. why are you doing this? I won't be able to make money anymore. Like, people are just freaking out. You know? Yeah, and it's it's um it's funny because in my head, sort of looking at it analytically, um, it what's really sad is that tells me that those people that are worried about the likes are only worried about the likes and that they believe that that's the only thing that drives their business model. So Mm -hmm. what Instagram isn't taking away is the ability to like something. You can still like it and that person will still get the metric and that person can still share it with a brand Mm -hmm. Um, and say, you know, I've got this amount of influence and so on, influencing quotes, whether whether you believe it or not. Um, But, you know, to the brands, this doesn't necessarily change things. However, what it does change in my, in my view. um, So they, 
they they trialed this in some other countries in New Zealand and so on. Um, a couple of months back, I was down there when they they announced it, and in certainly in New Zealand, um, where they are a victim to a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the indirect sort of stuff, um, there was quite a lot of happiness about it because they were hoping that it would just calm things down, not not stop it, not stop tourism, but just calm down this obsession with trying to get more and more likes. Um, and it, what it should hopefully do is focus people on liking things that they actually like rather than liking things because 15 million other people do. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that feels like a much healthier place to be. Um, if I like things because I actually like them, not because the crowd does, that's kind of good, isn't it? Um, well, not only that, but I, I feel like if you can't see what is successful from other accounts, you're going to be less likely to try to emulate it. Yeah, yeah, that, that true, that too. Um, I mean, the, the other there's a flip side as well um, to me, and, and unfortunately the, the change won't change this, but I actually stopped myself, it was probably about a year ago, we were uploading some photos um, and I ended up having a bit of a cleanse because we were uploading images and seeing frankly, seeing how many people liked it. And I started making decisions on which images we would promote and, and sell as prints based on the number of likes they got. Mm-hmm. And after about three or four of those sort of cycles, as it were, I, I sort of sat down, slapped myself, um, and gave myself a good talking to about what the hell are you doing here? Because, you know, it, some things affect likes completely differently. So there's things like you know, images with the color blue are more likely to be liked than images with the color yellow as the predominant color, depending on the time of day that you post it, depending on what tags you use. There's so many different variables. And I think it's very dangerous as photographers for us to start using the metrics of social media's approval to determine um, what style of images we do. And what's, so it, I'm sort of in a place where I almost ended up in that trap of starting to follow what other people would click on uh-huh. as a route to determining what I would shoot next. Yeah. Um, and I stopped it. Uh, it was sort of a, whoa, this is a dark place to start going to. Um, but I think that's a real risk of, of the current crop of social media tools that are out there, that that's what we're doing. We're, we're starting to, the art is starting to follow the popularity rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's worrying in my head. Well, I think, I mean, that's always been true of other art forms like music. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, like, oh, it's on the radio, so let's let's make stuff that, that will get played on the radio instead of let's make good music, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, and that's, and, and, you know, I'm under no illusion, you know, we, we have a, a mix of things that I shoot because I really like the scene and things that I shoot because I know we either have a client for it or I know it'll sell. Mm-hmm. Um and that's you know there's it's a healthy mix um, because you know, part of it pays the bills, part of it, it feeds um, some of the more exploration stuff that I want to do. Um, sure. And it's it's good to have that mix, but but to get to the point where everything is so consumed in what others think, um, you know, most photographers that I talk to, we believe that we're very creative, we believe that we're artists, and that's right because that's what you should be. Um, to, to get to the point of being great at taking images. Um, and I think everyone tries until their, their last breath to get better and better and better at it. Um, I just hope that that continues as the, the route that people want to go down rather than I just want to get more and more popular. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, which is a very different thing. Yeah, and it's funny. Um, just the on Twitter last night and this morning, I was actually kind of engaging with people that were upset about the change that Instagram was implementing, and they just didn't seem to think it was a big deal that um, that they actually do stuff uh, based on how much people will like it. And it caused me to remember, um, uh, I I have a psychology background and it caused me to remember uh, something I'd learned a time ago, which is a social comparison theory. Um, I'm just going to read a little thing from it just to kind of generate some thinking, but social comparison theory states that individuals determine their own social and personal worth based on how they stack up against others they perceive as somehow faring better or worse people sometimes compare themselves to others as a way of fostering self-improvement self-motivation and a positive self-image as a result humans constantly evaluate themselves and others across domains such as attractiveness wealth intelligence and success and i think the danger in that is that when people do that it also has an impact on uh you know how you behave because you start doing things and there's actually a ton of research that shows that when people regularly compare themselves to others they often experience feelings of deep deep dissatisfaction guilt remorse depression and engage in destructive behaviors yeah. um i mean it's but they're usually not aware of it you know yeah, and it's what's funny for me just hearing what you've what you've just read out. Um, it, you know, back in corporate world, um, I used to deal with that. So I'd have you know employees that would benchmark themselves against each other. So you know, he's earning more than me, she's earning more than me, whatever else. And that was it. It's a very dangerous path to go down because it, that ends up determining your self worth. So rather than looking at how can I earn more, how can I get better at my job, how can I get a promotion, you start looking around and thinking, well. As long as I'm doing better than that person, I'm okay. And that's that's not a healthy place to be in your mindset. And, and it's funny. So a lot of people now, certainly in you know, the years that we're in now, um, don't want to be in that corporate rat race. So this, this is the thing that I find hilarious. Everyone wants to get out of the rat race because it's it's you know, perceived as unhealthy and you, know, you don't want to be you know, working for the man for the rest of your life and just you know, trying to compare yourself against your peers and trying to do one better and whatever. So they come out of the rat race and they, they go and be an influencer and you start <laughs> comparing yourself against others and you start measuring your success based on other people. And whatever. Like, oh my God, you don't see this. It's, it's the same thing because it's human nature to compare and it's human nature to, to want to do better or um, feeling that you're doing better than your peers. Absolutely. Um, and it's just on social media, it's just so public that then when a company like Instagram says, right, we're going to take away that public endorsement of of how popular you are uh, or perceived to take it away, all of a sudden, like you, you've taken away my self-worth is the way that that'll feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, my, and actually my business, my ability to make money, or how it feels to them at the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and I dare say, if, if we said to photographers, you know, right, so from tomorrow, Lightroom, Capture One, Photoshop are no longer available, we'd probably have the same sort of reaction. <laughs> Um, because you know how how do I earn money now? And and it's you know, it'll it'll settle the dust will settle I'm sure. Um, but right now the amount of outrage and the reaction actually tells me a lot about how those platforms have driven behavior um, to date, and it, it needs to calm down. Right, and I mean actually I think if you think about it from a business perspective on Instagram's part, it's it's actually pretty brilliant because. 
I think what they've figured out is that um, people are still going to want to be able to show engagement, you know, which means they're going to be yeah. commenting yeah. more, which means they're going to be spending even more time yeah. on the platform. Um, so it's. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and actually from, from their point of view, you know, it, it's, it, I finally got, and actually there was part of what I alluded to in that article about the fact that, you know, all of this effort has gone to for a two second click of a like button before someone scrolls down some more pixels. And wouldn't it be better to invest your time actually engaging with people, having conversations, having, you know, and, and conversation in, in quotes. So it doesn't have to be a conversation like this. It can be a conversation online and virtually. Um, but that surely is a much more human engagement than just click like move on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, and I mean, what's kind of funny is that the platform has always had that available to anyone who uses it. Um, it just seems like yeah. people fall into this trap of you know like scroll, like scroll, like scroll. And yeah. what I've found, because um, you know I hear photographers complain about Instagram all the time, and I complain myself, but. Um, it's because I think they don't they don't use the tool in a way that could foster more uh, foster relationships and foster um, actually building meaningful and real engagement with people that like your brand. And I think um, there's a real opportunity for that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, there is. Uh, I, it's funny. I, I can't remember the guy's name, but I watched a. Um, it was a YouTube video, and it, you know, like out of a thousand YouTube videos, you watch one sort of sticks as a. Okay, that guy might have a point. Um, and it was a guy talking about the fact that photographers hate Instagram because it's it's ruining their careers, it's ruining their businesses, and everyone's now a photographer and blah blah blah. And he actually made the point, which which I I then did actually, which is so start making Instagram work as mm-hmm. a tool for you rather than a slave to it. So instead of chasing stuff and trying to emulate other people, uh, so I, and I did exactly actually what they were talking about, which is I now follow people on Instagram that give me ideas and inspiration. So my feed is now full of things that are interesting rather than the like mobile um, that, that a lot of people are on. So there's actually a way as a photographer, you can use that tool. It's an amazing tool. If you set up your feed well, um, you tell Instagram the stuff that you like to see, it does an amazing job of showing you some stuff that's really inspirational. Um, and I, I needed someone to tell me that, um, so to sort of try it and say, like, okay, now I have done, well, I, I kind of like this now. It's kind of nice. Um, it's a curated feed of things that I might like. There's, there's not much to hate about that. <laughs> not only that, but like, um, you know, the, the stories, like if, if you engage with people's stories by DMing them and yeah. like, you know, like that tells Instagram that you like their content and you're going to see more of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, which works on the flip side too. Like if you have stories that are engaging and people DM you, they're going to see more of your stuff, Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, not, not to say you should try to game the platform, but, um, it's set up to reward people to see more of the things that they want to see. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's learning, you know, it's, it's, it's deciding what is good for you. They want to keep you on the platform for as long as possible, obviously, because they make money out of advertising revenue. So, so in order to keep you on the platform, they've got to keep you interested. So to keep you interested, they're going to chase the things that they think that you like. So the more, the more sincere you are about the things that you like, the more you engage with people that actually you do have an interest in, the more people engage with you that they also have an interest in you. That mm-hmm. platform mm-hmm. becomes really, really powerful. It's only for the last well, four or five years, it's become so artificial as a platform 
um, that now people do have feeds that are meaningless to them because they've been following people that they think will get them more likes and all this sort of stuff rather than the stuff that actually matters. Right, right. Well, let's take a quick break from the conversation with Paul. If what Paul is talking about resonates with you and you're concerned too about the state of photography, I wanted to let you know that there's a way that you can make a difference. Head over to naturefirstphotography.org and join the movement. It costs nothing to join. Uh, We've developed seven principles. Go check it out at naturefirstphotography.org. We have the goal of getting up to 10,000 members by the end of 2020. We're looking for people to represent us in different countries all over the world. And we're really excited to grow and spread this movement. But we can't do it without you, so go check it out. Thanks. I want to go. I want to go back to something you had said earlier about, um, you know, you're you're aware that you know sometimes you'll take photos of things or places that you know is going to sell, and then sometimes you're taking photos of things that kind of feeds feeds your creative vision or feeds kind of your desires as a photographer. And I'm curious, just kind of in a general sense, why do you take pictures? Um. This is one of those questions that seems really easy when you ask it and it's actually really difficult to answer. Um, so uh, <laughs> if, if I'm honest, there, there are two things in my head um, when, I'm, when I see something that I want to take a picture of. So in fact, let me, let me answer it differently. The reason I go out to take photos is because I like seeing the world. I always have done, always will do. And part of it is I'd love other people to see some of that stuff too. Um, I just, you know, today I started editing a series that we shot in Greenland over the icebergs. So we were flying over Disco Bay with these huge icebergs that are mm. floating around. We've got a whole series of that, that that we'll put out. Um, and that's just an incredible sight to see. Not everyone's going to get to see it. Um, and I quite like the fact that some people will get to see more of that, the more that, that those sort of images are, are pumped out. The other part of it is there's something really cool about, someone sharing the moment that you click that button with you when they hang it on their wall mm. um there's something it's, it's kind of weird that um if I, i'll tell you a, a, a true story um a uh, lady bought an image um a, a, a big um acrylic and metal print from our gallery um it was of a jetty um at a, a resort that we shot and um it's, it's, uh, I like the print. I, I remember the morning that I shot it. It was an amazing sunrise. Um, and it's, it's fantastic. Um, and about a year later, for a completely different reason, I had to get in touch with them. Um, we were doing a little bit of research. And she said to me, um, A, you know, good to hear from you. B, it's great that you got in touch. Um, you remember that image that we bought from you? Yeah, it's hung above our bed, and we conceived our child that I now have to that image. And I thought, A, that's a bit creepy <laughs> that I know that. That's a, that's a bit too much information. But B, actually, it's kind of cool. Um, you know, to some people, it'll be, you know, they walk into, they, they bring guests into their house and they say, oh, look at this image, look at how cool this city looks or how cool this mountain looks or something like that. The fact that I produced that is really quite special. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people take it to the, to the extreme, as I said, um, but there's something about the fact that whatever you have um, captured and seen at that time won't just be seen by you. Mm-hmm. You get to share that with everyone else that wants to see it. Mm-hmm. And I think to me, that's the power of a photograph. Mm-hmm. Because without that photograph, you're the only person that saw that. 
and sometimes that's amazing. You know, there, there's that film, I can't remember the title of it, where he's looking for the, the white tiger or white leopard or whatever, the Walter Mitty, I think it is. Um, and there's there's one, maybe it's not, I can't remember what it is, um, but there's this one moment in his life where he's like, do you know what, I'm not going to take a photo of this because I want it just for me. Mm. And I think that's important too. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, what drives me to, to take an image that I think people want to put on their walls, the fact that, I get to share that with whoever wants to see it. Mm. And a photograph is the only way you can do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that's, that's the, the, the crux of it. So it seems, it seems to me that um, based on what you've said about the, the power of the photograph is that it's, it's an approximation of what your experience was through, through the camera mm. and that you can share with others. I'm curious does that also kind of bleed into where you stand kind of on the whole conversation around, you know, digital manipulation and sky swapping <laughs> and, you know, like com- compositing yeah. and things of that nature? So I, uh, I am a staunch believer in you should record what was there at the time. Um, and I think that there's a, there is a fine line. So, everyone sees things differently. And actually, funnily enough, the advent of advanced camera phones has actually changed our world quite a lot because those phones now are not just taking a picture of what the camera sees. It's actually manipulating that image. Mm -hmm. So there's intelligence in the phone that knows this is a sunset. So let's make it more orange. Let's make it more warm. Let's make it look more like a sunset. So as humans, our expectations of what a sunset looks like are starting to become more extreme. (laughs) And we expect uh, a blue sky to be deep blue. We expect green grass to be bright green. And and, and that's, uh, to an extent, that's a dangerous place to to head down, but we're doing it as a a civilization. Um, But what that means is my, my job, effectively, is to ensure that the image that comes out as a print represents what I remember seeing. Mm-hmm. And my brain may be different to your brain and different to the next person's brain. So I may see things that are richer blues. You may see things that are richer reds. And so we're, we're all different. Um, we all interpret things differently as well. Um, so there is some latitude in that in my head, which is, you know, my interpretation of a scene compared to the raw data that you get may be slightly different. And, and funnily enough, when, we, when we're doing workshops and stuff, one of the things that... Um, the, the biggest thing that people ask us to help them with is how do I make my image look like what I saw? Mm-hmm. Because the camera, when you shoot in raw, in their head, doesn't. And we have to explain to people, that actually, that is the raw data. That's what's there. What's happening, what you're seeing in a scene isn't what your eyes necessarily are capturing. It's what your brain is processing from what your eyes captured. So when you see a sunset, you do see it as rich and golden. And you know that thing where when you see the sunset, you feel a bit warmer. Right. Well, the temperature hasn't increased. The temperature's going down. It's sunset. Um, but because our brain is is entering into the frame, it's starting to say, oh, it's sunset. So it's nice and warm. You know, it's, it's cozy and it's sunset. Ah, orange colors. And so then when you take a picture and you look at the back of the camera in raw and it's like, oh, it's pretty flat and it's pretty bright. And, and part of that is uh, the reason for that is so that we can um, – use that dynamic range of, of, of capture to, uh, to, re, to to put it back to, to exactly what we remember seeing. But part of it is our brain has a huge amount of influence over what our eyes are seeing. So I'm not against the idea that someone may want to bring that picture back to what they saw. No problem with that at all. Where I have a problem where I draw the line is when someone brings an image back to something that was never there. So 
you know, when you see these images where it's been taken at sunset and there's the whole Milky Way above. And I'm like, no, that, that never happened. Um, and, and we have this challenge, especially with hotels. Um, so when we shoot for a hotel, obviously no hotel wants a grey sky. Um, in, in a brochure, it, does, it doesn't sell rooms very well. Um, but the way that we get around that, and I've had, don't get me wrong, I've had arguments with hotels about this. Yes, of course, we can clean up the beach. We can get the trash off the beach. We can make the sand a little bit whiter. We can make the sea a little bit bluer. What we're not going to do is create a false um, impression of what's there. What we can do is book that shoot over three or four days rather than one or two, which gives us some latitude in weather. Um, and we can tweak stuff to a certain extent. But what I'm not going to do is completely fabricate an image. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of that. And what worries me a lot now in the industry is I'm seeing certain software tools out there, you know, with features of sky replacement and features of you know, um, person replacement, person reshaping, stuff like that. Um, and even if I go back to my sort of model shoot days, um, the rule that we used to have was, would something be there in two weeks? So if you had a pimple on your face, the chances are it wouldn't be there in two weeks. Um, but if there's something, you know, can I? Can you manipulate my nose to be a little bit smaller and can you do this and tuck this and nip that and whatever? No, because that's not you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sort of the same with landscape stuff, which is if we want to remove a bit of trash, fine, because it it's temporary and it shouldn't be there. But we're not going to recreate um, the sunset from the equator on against an iceberg from Greenland. Mm-hmm. Um, which is what I see some of these tools trying to do. Yeah, like Luminar. Um, yeah. yeah. What? It's interesting. Um, I, I totally appreciate um, that you have that set of, um, I guess, I don't want to know if the right word is ethics, but you have that ethic for your own work. I'm curious, what is it about seeing that from other photographers that is that bothers you? It's, so, I, I guess if I sort of reframe um, where I'm at, I think the difference for me is one is photography, the other is artwork, and and and, and that I think is to me the differentiator. So, I, I, a friend of mine actually is a, is an amazing retoucher, um, and he can create. He's, he's actually beyond a retoucher. He's a, he's a full on digital artist, mm-hmm. and the stuff that he can do with a Wacom tablet compared to what I can do is, is phenomenal. Um, and he creates genuine, amazing scenes. And actually, uh, there's a um, a guy, um, Felix Hernandez. Um, I, I took him on a workshop um, a couple of years ago um, with Phase One. We took him out to Death Valley in San Francisco and so on. Um, to to take him around, shoot landscapes and so on. What I didn't realize is in the background, Felix actually creates um, these model scenes. So he creates, he's done some campaign work for um, some car companies and stuff where he creates these fantasy scenes. And it's with models and he'll, he'll composite a background from a landscape that he shot, you know, maybe with one-on-ones with me. Um, he'll put some stars in, he'll put some smoke effects in, he'll put some models in, and he'll he'll add all these shots together. And then quite often he'll do them, try and do them in one shot, but quite often there's still some serious retouching to do. And what he creates is amazing. I can only dream of being able to create some of the art that, he, that he's producing. Mm-hmm. But he calls himself an artist because of that. Um, and, and he's very clear that I'm creating art. I'm not, this is art created from photographs. 
And I think that's where I sort of look at it, where if I see, and a lot of photographers actually say this, you know, I, I created this piece of art for, out of, you know, I, and uh, I'll see it quite often online. I blended three images to create this. Great. Love it. Because actually uh, that can be really useful to know how to do it. And lots of people are interested in that, that sort of technique. And I, I'm interested in that technique. Um, but I'd like to know when I'm being given the truth mm. versus given a piece of art. Um, and don't get me wrong, art can be truth as well. You know, I'm not, I'm not disputing that. But, but I'd like to be made aware. And I, I think I'd like the, I, I have the right to know whether something was real or whether it was a creation from someone's mind. And the creations can be stunning. But I'd like to know that it was a creation instead of a facsimile of mm-hmm. what was there at the time. Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly know that when I look at imagery um, from people, um, I know that I have a completely different reaction if if I know that it's um, relatively rooted in the experience or reality versus it being a creation, an artistic creation. I definitely find myself responding differently to those two different types of work yeah yeah it's a different feeling um because because one is a capture of something that happened the other is a creation from someone's mind and they're equally as magnificent that they can be but as you say it's it's Mm -hmm. a completely different feeling one is i'm trying to share the experience that you're showing me when you were there the other is you're trying to entertain me with something Mm -hmm. that looks very cool and that's that's a very different thing it is I, <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like we're pretty much on the same page there. I just, um, I try to play devil's advocate because there's a, when these arguments come up, like a photographer named Felix Inden uh, just posted a kind of thread on Facebook last week about the new Luminar, like sky swapping. And I think Christian Hoiberg wrote an article about it and, uh, and and it was interesting to see the reactions from people like, why do you care that people are swapping skies? Like, what does it matter? Just let them do what they want. And I'm like, look, I don't care that you're doing that. But like, yeah, I just want to know that that's what you did. I, th- I think some of it is because um, and this is an artist thing. So if someone says to me, um, that's oversaturated. Or I'd, I'd, I'd had one a couple, um, well, I think it was last week. We put an image up that we're actually using for um campaign of the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, and typically what I will tend to do is whenever I'm shooting, I'll also take an iPhone shot of the scene and of the, the camera on the scene. So I, mostly for my benefit, funnily enough, so that I've got a reference just to make sure that I, I remember um, exactly how things were. Um, so, and, and it's things like long exposure. So if I make a note in my head of, right, we've got a problem because something's flapping around in the wind there, then my iPhone shot, I can sort of make notes at the time and just say, right, these are the things I need to, to deal with later. Mm-hmm. And we put this image up and this this guy sort of went, oh, this is disgraceful. You know, my iPhone could have done better than this. The colors are so rich and bright and whatever else. And like, it's before dawn. It's in blue hour with a fog-driven Golden Gate Bridge. So the, the red color is just bouncing everywhere um, right. in that sky against the deep blue sky. So I actually put up the iPhone photo and said, do you want to continue? <laughs> um, because there you go. That's, that's, that's what was there. But, but it's interesting because even I, at that point, you feel attacked because you feel like someone's saying what you did was wrong. And, and I see this in the argument quite often about the whole blending and compositing and stuff like that. As, as artists, what people take away from someone saying, you know, was this a composite is, someone takes that as a, as an insult, like, oh, you tried to cheat me. 
And then it becomes an argument and it becomes a standoff. And it's actually not. It, it's, it's not someone saying what you're doing is wrong or bad. It's someone trying to understand, was this right. real or was this not? Um, and that's where all the heat comes from because it's, it's taken as a, as a dig, as an insult, as, a, as, as criticism, um, where actually it's just people quite often just trying to understand, did this really happen? And if it didn't happen, right. well done for creating something that looks stunning. Right, I think it boils but down to like people happened. just don't like to be duped, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think that, so that's, to me, that's where the sort of line is in, in the work that I do, which is, and I, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, I'm sure some people will look at some of the images that we produce and say they are you know, either more saturated, too contrasty, too sure. whatever. Some of that is based on what the client wanted. Some of it is based on what I remember as well. Um, but in general, we will always try and keep things as accurate to what I remember seeing um, as possible. And that's where I, I, I do struggle with the, um, with the creative aspects of, of blending and replacing skies and stuff like that, because I'm just sort of thinking, where does that stop? Um, because again, and it goes back to that thing you, you asked, you know, why do I do it? I love the fact that someone is able to look at one of the pictures that I produce on their wall and think that looks amazing. And they can share that moment. If that moment never happened, how do I get that feeling? Because what you're then doing, you're, you're appreciating something I created. Okay, great. And for some people, that would be what they want. But to me, I don't want the appreciation of what I created. Mm-hmm. I want the appreciation mm-hmm. of what I captured that, that was real. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's how I feel as well. It's, um, it's just interesting. I spend a lot of time trying to understand um, why people get so upset when this conversation comes up. Because like, I'm not, I don't want to tell other people don't create composites. I just want... Well, I was, was going to say, because I'm guessing from your point of view, you, you don't have like a, a, a solid line that says composites are bad or whatever. Like, I don't think anyone that I know does. Oh, I've met, um, I've definitely met photographers, <laughs> especially people that shot a lot of film. Like I know a lot of people that are like composites are terrible. I think, I think where they get, where people get upset is when they call it photography, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's like, where it's, I don't know. But I think with, with that, I think as well, you know, everyone, I'm sure everyone's been saying this since the birth of photography, but, you know, photography is changing and blah, blah, blah. Every year we say that. Um, but in real terms, photography is changing. People's expectations are changing. You know, the, the introduction of AI onto phones and stuff, you know, it is changing the world of photography and people's expectations are moving with that. But also our ability to create things that are, let's call them more perfect than they really were, mm-hmm. um, is is becoming more accessible. So I think, as photographers, we've kind of got to accept that, you know, this, this isn't going to go away. It's not going to, people aren't going to stop creating stuff. And people have always done this. You know, a painting, a, a portrait painting is a, is a creation. It's not a photograph. It's not a facsimile. And they've been around longer than cameras have. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we accept that the, 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 that genre of art exists, actually working with that stuff actually can be fun. So, you know, the example I gave of, of Felix he was capturing landscapes with me around some of the desert to using composites. And I was sat there thinking, this is amazing because he's actually thinking ahead of what he's going to do with that background and how he's going to manipulate stuff and how he's going to put things with it. That's incredible. And that's not a, it's not a mindset that I have. So I, I find it fascinating that process. I'm not against it, mm-hmm. but then likewise, he will say that he creates art right, rather than just takes photos. Right. I think, I think that's where people get kind of hung up is that 
they don't want to be um, put in the same uh, pool of water with people that are doing something totally different. Like I'm a, you know, I, yeah. I want to be known as a landscape photographer who is creating scenes that I actually experience. If you want to be known as someone who is creating digital art, that's a kind of mock-up of various scenes that you've taken over many different locations that's fine. I just don't want to be like compared to you. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't benchmark me on the same basis. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, and, I, and actually here's the funny thing. I, after um, about five or six years ago, I was playing something. I tried it once. It's hard. Honestly, I, I tried this composite stuff. It is really hard to do well. Um, so, you know, I have the utmost respect for them. Um, the guys that are doing this stuff, and and I think some of the, the work that's produced is incredible. But in the same way that um, you know the hurdles isn't the same as a hundred meter sprint, um, they're they're both forms of athletics, but they're very different races. In the same way, um, photography and digital art are two different disciplines. They are both great in their own right, but it'd be good to know which one we're looking at, um, rather than as you say, sort of being duped, um, which is the the risk of what's coming around the corner. Yeah, and I think just because. It is based in photography, this digital art, right? Um, I think, you know, there's an expectation on the part of the viewer that it's that it was a real experience or a real thing that occurred unless unless it's stated otherwise. And then I think yeah. it also um, it pushes the expectations of what reality actually is capable of producing. Absolutely. I mean, and actually, funnily enough, it goes back to what we were talking about before around um, sort of Instagram ruining places and whatever, because there are now images that set the completely wrong expectation for what a location looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are going there with that expectation and they are woefully disappointed when they arrive to find that actually the Milky Way doesn't rise directly over the, the particular peak of that uh, mountain. And there isn't a unicorn flying through the sky at midnight every night. And, <laughs> you know, all, all, all the stuff that looked incredible in that picture, they get there and they're, they're woefully disappointed by it. Um, and that's it. That's equally sad to driving tourism for an, uh, an unreal expectation. So mm-hmm. we're making things even worse. Whereas if it had been said, you know, I created this out of you know, a galaxy from this area and I got this amazing shot of the Northern Lights, which I blended in, they got this fantastic exposure of this mountain scene with snow and whatever, added that all together. And isn't this amazing? Yeah, great. I love it. <laughs> um, but say that. But I think there's a reason why people don't. <sighs> Go on. <laughs> um well i think people have experienced uh that when they do that the response is that oh really because that just oh see yeah yeah because they're setting themselves up for disappointment effectively so galen rowell he's a photographer um that shot a lot in the eastern sierras um and uh he had a gallery and he had a photograph hanging up in his gallery of a grizzly bear that was like about to attack the photographer. And um, lots of people would come into the gallery and ask him like, Oh my God, was that like, did that happen? And he's like, and no, it wasn't. It was like a trained Hollywood bear uh, (laughs) that he had just photographed because it looked cool. And he could see, like, it was palpable when people realized that it wasn't a real experience, that it was just no longer, like, it just, 
Like it wasn't a story that held up. Like it no longer held up in their minds as people were so keen to believe it that when it's not real, it's a letdown. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I I get it. I, I hadn't looked at it in that in that sense, but yeah, you're right. Um, and it's it's sort of be. Do you remember that that phrase? Um, I mean, I'm I'm old enough to have, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, or whatever. You know, a, a picture never lies. Photograph never lies. That was what we were told when we were growing up. And we're absolutely in the place where photographs absolutely do lie. They always have done. But whereas it used to be really difficult to doctor a photograph, mm-hmm. it's now really easy. <laughs> um, but I think some of that comes from the fact that we always grew up thinking, you know, a, a picture was, you know, it's, it's good for evidence in a court case. It's good for, you know, proving that you were there, whatever. But actually, it can lie. And as you say, that's a disappointment mm-hmm. when you realize that you've you've been lied to in your head. Now, whether the person actually said that it was real or whatever, that's that's up to you to decide. But if you've built up in your head, as you say, those that, those people going in thinking this is a, a real thing that happened, then you find out it was actually an actor. Well, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I get it. That's disappointment in a cup right yeah. there. Well, so, I mean, I feel like that topic, we could talk for hours. But um, one of the things I did want to talk to you about also was um, I know noticed on your website and – I think through conversation today, you've talked a lot about, um, you know, you, you, you've photographed a lot of iconic locations. Um, and I'm guessing a lot of that is for clients and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious, kind of, what is your take on iconic photography? Like showing up to a place like Mesa Arch, which, which has, you know, 30,000. <laughs> for a quiet, quiet little sunrise session on your own. Yeah. Right. Like, um. <laughs> yeah. What's your, what's your take on it? Um, the, the world is getting smaller. Um, it is it is way easier now for people to get to these, as you say, iconic locations. Um, I think I think those iconic locations are being abused. Um, we are way over quote. If there was a quota of what you should have, you know, <laughs> people were up in arms when they put quotas on for the wave um, and you know the subway in Zion and stuff like that. I think that's a great move. They should be doing that. Um, you know, the, the Antelope Canyon stuff. I mean, Peter Lee um, is, will always be known for his Antelope Canyon shots, but what it also be known for is is filling that canyon with thousands and thousands of tourists every single hour. Um, who were all getting angry at each other because everyone's in each other's photos, and so the, you know the business is trying around as many people in as possible, and, and, and that iconic location just becomes ruined. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I see that around the world a lot. Um, there used to be, you know, the iconic locations for photographers. There was almost like if you're a landscape photographer, there's probably the bucket list of sort of twenty places. Um, as travel has become more simplified and frankly more accessible. Um, that bucket list is probably 500 places long now right. and, and all places are easy to get to. Um, and I, th- I think what's a shame for me is, you know, I'll, I'll take Mesa Arch as a perfect example. How amazing would it have been to have been that first person that walked up to Mesa Arch and saw that sunrise happen right. before anyone else knew? That, I mean, can you imagine that feeling? And then you think about what I was saying about earlier about how great it is to be able to share that feeling with people in the photograph. Well, now you put a picture of Mesa Arch up and everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's Mesa Arch. We've seen that. Um, even people that haven't been there, it's like, yeah, we, we know what that is. We've seen that a thousand times now. Right. Um, and that to me is really sad. So we've we've saturated the world with those locations to the point where people find these amazing places boring to look at because <laughs> they've seen it all. Right. 
So where we're now at, and, and it's funny, there, there are two approaches to this. Um, one is the approach that says we now need to look for second-rate locations because all the first-grade locations have been saturated and full of tourists. I don't subscribe to that because I don't believe for a second the whole of the world has been explored. Um, I think there are still places that are relatively off the beaten path. Um, and I'm not talking about the going to the middle of Antarctica and going to the bottom of the sea. I'm talking about, <laughs> you know, instead of going to a national park, how about you just explore the wilderness a little bit, um, which could be quite fun in its own right. Um, you know, instead of just you know going to the spot in New York to take the picture of the skyline, how about you actually get in amongst the streets and take some different angles and, and stuff and get something that's unique um, to you. So, to me, there's a mix. If if we have to produce something either to a spec or because we've got a request in, um, then yeah, we'll go and shoot the icon. That's fine. But I, sorry, personally, I'm finding that less and less fun every time I arrive because I I know what I'm walking into now. I've done right. it enough that I know at sunrise at some of these locations. Unless you get there three hours before you're not going to get a slot. And, and that's the sad, you know, we're talking about, can you get a spot to take right. a photograph? How sad is that? Um, and and also, and likewise, as I said earlier about Mesa Arch, you know, how sad is it that as a tourist, I, I never forget the look on this woman's face at Mesa when the photographers were tutting at her because she dared to walk around the, to the side of where they were. And of course, she, she didn't realize most people are shooting that thing with an ultra-wide lens. Right. So she was in the shot. She didn't have a clue. And the, it wasn't abuse. But you know that the British are very good at doing this. We're, we're very good at passive aggressive <laughs> um, rather than out and out, you know, get out of my way. So instead of that, we sort of tut a lot and, and expect you to get the hint that you're doing something bad. Um, and that was what she got. Just just constant, you know, animosity from people that you know, not only should she be able to enjoy that moment, they should be enjoying that moment. But because it's now a stressful situation, I can honestly say at Mesa Arch, no one was enjoying that sunrise. Not even me. No, I, I stayed there for a bit longer, but still, the, the actual process of, of capturing it was stressful. Yeah. Um, and we've we've done that to all of our iconic places. We've over tourism is is a huge problem. Um, the growth of population around different areas in the world is is causing that to accelerate rather than decelerate. Um, the availability of air travel is is becoming so widespread and, main, and mainstream that it's not a problem to get on a plane and go and hunt a, a random place. I mean, I was in um, Morocco a couple of weeks ago. We went to Chefchaouen, uh, which is the blue city in Morocco. Um, and it is a pain in the ass to get to. You, you know, you fly into either Casablanca or Marrakesh, then you've got to drive for six hours or so. None of the hotels are near the road. You know, you've got to walk with your bags up hills and cobbled streets and <laughs> down 700 meters of steps and stuff. Try, try doing that with a bad back. Trust me, it's painful. Um, right. But, you know, when we got there, I was like, oh, at least, and actually, I remember thinking to myself, at least after all of this, you know, it, it's going to be a relatively quiet place um, because this is just painful to get to. And it wasn't. The next day was like a zoo um, of people in the same spots doing the same pictures with the same walls and the same buildings. Um, so I think we are, we have, and we are ruining the world. And, and I am, again, like earlier, I am acutely aware that I am part of that problem. Right. So what's um, I'm part of the problem by nature of the fact that I'm there. I'm also part of the problem by nature of the fact that I then publish the image, which in turn then encourages, you know, hopefully at least one more person to go, to go there, depending on 
how many likes I got. Um, but, <laughs> We've come full circle. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I am part of the problem and, and, and so is everyone else. I think where I'm at, though, and, and I would say that where there's a subtle difference is I am very aware that I am part of the problem. Mm. And because of that, I take certain steps. So we only go to iconic places if um, I have a business, effectively a business need to, or we've got a workshop client that's going to go there anyway and wants me to, to help them. When we're there, actually, I spend a lot of time now on workshops teaching people the ethics stuff that, and, and the business stuff and, and the processing and everything. But a lot of it is now ethics about, you know, how do you interact with communities that are fed up of photographers mm. being in their in their hometown? How do you behave around other photographers? I, the one thing that I, well, there's two things that golden rules we teach people on workshops. Number one, you do not own the view. That's that's golden rule number one. So absolutely under no circumstances do you own any view. The view is there for everyone. Number two, if you're complaining about someone with a camera who's in your shot, the chances are that they that you are in their shot. So it doesn't mean that one of you is more right than the other. You both have the right to be there. Um and that sort of stuff that if we just if we just drum into each other, um I would love to be in a situation where um that animosity is gone. In, in fact, I'll tell you a funny story, a true story, um, um, not a composite. Um, in Tokyo, uh, oh God, must have been four or five years ago, I was taking a picture of the Tokyo Tower um, from the street. And Tokyo Tower is quite iconic because it's in this orange and white um, lighting setup. And when we got to the, the place that I planned on shooting it from, which wasn't a popular place, um, but this guy was stood in front of me, a, a local Japanese guy um, who was already there with his tripod and taking photos. And you know you get that, ah, oh, shit. Right. Because, <laughs> like, okay, he, it's his right to be there. You know, it's, it's my bad. I got, I got there too late and whatever. So he carried on clicking, and, and he was good. And I, I, we sort of figured, well, we'll wait and see if he, he goes. And um, he turned around and instantly – just said to us, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, do you want to take this photo? I'm in your photo. I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. chill out. Don't worry. It's, it's okay. You, you, you were here first. You've got the right to. As he did that, um, the lights changed to a rainbow. So all the lights became this rainbow um, National Day um, colouring. And he looked so happy and I looked so miserable because that was what he wanted to capture. And I wanted to capture the orange. <laughs> So um, he, he said, I said to him, look, honestly, there's no point in me taking the picture, so you, you carry on, you know, enjoy it. He said, oh, why? What's wrong? So I wanted the orange. He said, okay, bear, bear with me. So he, he clicked for a little while, probably another three or four frames. And then he picked out his phone, and he started dialing in. And I said to him, are you okay? Can I take some, can I take some pictures now? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just calling Tokyo Tower to ask him if they can put the orange lights on. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so... Now, it, obviously, they told him where to go. Um, <laughs> he was, he was the, so if you're Tokyo Tower and you get this random photographer say, hey, can you turn the lights back to orange, please, on National Day, you, you basically just hang up. Um, but he was so upset that, like, he, in his head, you now he's, he's ruined my photo and whatever else. He's like, hey, don't worry. Seriously, mate, just, just chill out. B, the fact that you were going to do that, just makes me have every bit of faith in humanity restored about how kind people can be um, in this industry. That's the only time I've been impressed by human behavior in, in that scenario. And that's sad because, you know, if you're a new photographer, let's say, you know, you're, you're on your 
once in a lifetime trip and you're best pick on Mesa Arch again because it's fun. Um, so you finally worked out where Mesa Arch is and you've parked the car and there's a few cars in the parking lot and, and off you go trekking. And then you get there and you realize that you're photographer number 36. Now, the current experience would be 35 photographers basically edging you out, making sure you can't get in and get the shot because that's, that's how photographers behave. How amazing would it be if those photographers just looked around and said, hey, buddy, you know, I'm, why don't you squeeze in here? Why don't we cross over our tripod legs? You know, we're not going to bash each other. It's, it'll be fine. Right. Or like, you know, we can make some Hey, room. why don't you want to use my tripod? Like I got like, yeah. I'll get the shot and then you can use my tripod. And then it's your go. And how wonderful would that place be? Um, but we, we're humans and we don't behave that way. And that that's where I, I sort of get a little bit sad about it because it's not the locations that are trashed. It's our way of behaving around the, lo- the locations that have trashed mm-hmm. them. So what um, what do you th- what do you think the answer is? Honestly, we've just got to stop being assholes. <laughs> and I, I, I include myself. You know, it, the problem is, it's a natural thing to do. I, you know, for all of that I preach to, to clients and so, and I'm talking about it now. You know, you don't own the view and whatever. I am acutely aware that if I've set everything up and I've been there for two hours waiting for the perfect sunset, and someone walks in front of my frame, I'm like, ah, right. Um, and that's a natural human reaction, but that can be your inside reaction. Your outside reaction, surely we can temper that a little bit and we can start being a little bit more considerate to each other. And, you know, go, you know, go back to that farmer before, you know, at the point when you've got a farmer that is intentionally ruining people's photographs because he's just fed up that having tried the normal human ways, no one's listening to him. That's, that's where we've got to. And, you know, I, if we just calm down a little bit, recognize that, especially in landscape photography, the rock isn't going anywhere. It's been there for 3,000 years. It's going to be there for another 3,000. It may be underwater, but it's going to be there for another 3,000, <laughs> um, which I am. So we offset all of our carbon, trust me. Uh, however, um, you know, there is a, there's a reality in everything that we do, which is, Yes, if you get there at the perfect light, um, it can be very frustrating if something external causes that shot to be missed. And I've had it. I've been in. I've been shooting um, in Sydney before, and right at the point of sunset, a cruise ship comes through your shot. Mm. And you're like, I, and and don't get me wrong. For a brief second, I wanted that ship to sink. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, you know, that was my Titanic moment, and I wanted every single person on there to pay the price for ruining my photograph. <laughs> but then you think about it and think, hold on a minute. There are two and a half thousand people there enjoying the sunset over Sydney Harbour on a boat, and it's their right to do that, as it's my right to stand here and try and capture it. And sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. Right. So let's just chill out a bit and stop. I don't know whether it's, I don't think it's hate, because it's very difficult to hate someone that you don't know. Mm-hmm. But we certainly have loathing for people for no reason um, when we go into these crowded places. So, you know, option one, stop going to crowded places. Let's let's spread out our human impact on the world a little bit better. Um, let's go to different places. You might you might find some places that are more exciting than the, the classic ones. Um, and I'm I'm very aware that I am guilty of that as much as anyone. It's easy to go to the places that we know about. Mm-hmm. Um, but number two, if we are going to the places we know about, um, or we go to somewhere that we've just discovered is cool and accidentally geotag it, and then the next week a tour bus arrives. Um, just accept the fact that it's it's also their right to be there too, um, and that's tough. It's it's tough to do as photographers, but we've 
we've got to stop the animosity. Mm. And I see it everywhere. Yeah. No, I like it. Awesome, man. Well, winding down, (laughs) who do you think our listeners would want to hear from here on the podcast? Um, So I've mentioned Felix um, earlier, so it'd be rude for me to say not him. (laughs) Um, So, so, I mean, honestly, so Felix, um, Felix Hernandez, he's, he works out of South America. He's, he's done, um, he actually, when I, when I took him on a workshop, he was, um, he was still sort of finding his way with corporate clients. He now does some amazing stuff with commercial pies and car companies and confectionery companies and so on. Um, and he started doing talks with Adobe and stuff on his work because, you know, that, it, he's, he's my composite person that you know, yeah. we're saying is it's a great skill to have. Um, and he's certainly one of the better people that I've, I've seen doing it. Um, so he's, um, he calls himself Hernandez dream photography. Okay. I think I can't remember whether it's a dash or an underscore it's Hernandez dream photography on, on Instagram and the stuff that he produces is, it, it is, it's fun as well as being cool. That's that's the key for me. It's like you look at it and think, actually, that would have been really cool to create. Mm. Um, and he does some really cool videos on how he does some of this stuff. Um, and then I guess from a from a classic point of view, um, another person I met in a workshop, we took him out to Cuba um, to shoot. Um, it's a guy called David Beavis. Um, so Dave is based in... Where is he? He's in Utah, Park City, I think. Park City, in Utah. Okay. Um, he's got a gallery there, and he's. Um, it's funny. He he and I were wandering around Cuba and and struggling with the same thing, which is sort of street photography isn't really either of our bags. Like we, it's one where we can do it. Um, but David was absolutely more into the landscape stuff um, at, at the time, and that was a few years ago. And and when I got back, I then looked at the stuff that he's. Um, before because I was actually there with with phase one at the time and you sort of you arrived to some people that you didn't know um and then later on you get to to find out um, what they've done before and some of his um landscapes are stunning um he's got he's he's an Australian guy he moved to the US um, with his family on a sort of a I'm packing up and I'm going to do this photography thing for a for a living so I I've got some sort of appreciation for <laughs> for what he did with that, um, but you know, somebody he's, he's got this this one shot. Um, I don't normally like wildlife stuff personally, but he's got this one shot of some horses um, running through water, um, and it's just from a timing point of view, he could not have got that shot better. It is stunning, um, and he shoots on phase one, so this stuff, you know, when you print it big, um, it, it just looks phenomenal. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd check him out. So yeah, Felix Hernandez and David Beavis are probably worth a checking out and b having a chat with. Um, yeah, they're they're both pretty cool. Awesome, man. Well, thanks. This has been a lot of fun. Cool. No cool. worries. Some um, yeah. All right. Well, thanks to Paul for joining us on the podcast. It was truly a pleasure conversing with you and hearing all about your perspective on the world as a photographer. Thank you so much. All right, well, first, I really want to thank our newest patron. Thanks to Tim Rate for joining in at the $5 a month level. Um, it's people like you, Tim, that are sustaining the show. I really appreciate you and everyone else who has joined in over on Patreon. And if, if you want to do that too, just go to patreon.com slash fstop and listen. 
Well, through Patreon and the, the generosity that you all have shown, um, we have been able to create a Landscape Conservation Award. And uh, I couldn't do that without your help. And so basically, instead of complaining about all the bad things in photography, I really want to just, uh, I don't know, support somebody who's, who's making a difference. We, still, we are still accepting nominations through the end of December, and then we will have a small panel of judges uh, select the winner of the award, which right now is up over $1,500. If you want to donate um, and make that award even higher, there is a link to that um, in the liner notes where you can um, you know, donate and help give that person even more money and reward them for their awesome efforts. We also have some awesome brands that have contributed uh, to um, sweeten the deal even more and align their brand with the message that we have for kind of thoughtful conservation photography. Um, that includes uh, QT Luang. Uh, he's a photographer and he is donating a limited edition copy of his award-winning photo book, Treasured Lands. Uh, there's a link to Treasured Lands in the liner notes that you should definitely check out. Uh, Treasured Lands is a photo book all about the 61 U.S. national parks with location and photography notes for each photograph. Uh, the limited edition version is valued at $245. Thank you so much, QT. Uh, we also have Viewbug, the uh, popular photo sharing and contest website. They are donating a Pro Plus membership to the winner of the award, and that is a $179 value. Uh, we also have uh, Shimoda Designs. They have just launched a new line of camera backpacks called the Action X series. I actually uh, did a review of that camera backpack over on my website. You can check out the liner notes to see more about that. It's really fantastic, guys. I, I know you could probably get tired of hearing about people talk about their camera backpacks. It really is an awesome backpack, so check it out. Uh, they're donating to the winner of the award a landscape, um, I'm sorry, they are donating a camera bag of their choice, a core unit, and a roller and accessory case, a $779 value. And lastly, we have Read Art and Imaging. They are a fine art print lab located in Denver, Colorado. And um, I actually just put in an order for four acrylic prints through them that uh, my customers uh, ordered. And um, I drove up to them in Denver uh, two days ago now and, um, and got to sign my prints and get a tour of the lab. And man, it's just, I was really impressed with the team at Read. Uh, they're doing some amazing stuff. I can't recommend them any higher. Uh, they are donating to the winner of the Landscape Conservation Award a $500 credit towards the purchase of an acrylic print. Um, and then also we have Tamron, the uh, camera lens manufacturer. They are donating to the winner a 45 millimeter lens, a $599 value. Awesome. Well, thank you to all of our uh, podcast uh producers um, the people that are supporting us at the $20 a month level higher over on patreon uh, we, we can't we can't do this show without your guys' support and um, again if, if you want to get another get a free hat um, uh, Phil Monson leave it better than you found a hat uh, join join these amazing individuals over on patreon fstop uh, patreon.com fstop and listen um, so thank you to uh, Jack Curran I can't wait to hang out with you um in uh yosemite this winter eric stensland uh he has a, a gallery in um 
uh, near Rocky Mountain National Park and he's probably one of the nicest and most amazing <laughs> people I've ever met. Uh, Chris Rice, he's a longtime supporter of the show. Uh, Jeff Peterson, um, he, he, he does the art circuit scene and produces some fantastic photos, so check out his work. Um, David Kingham, he's, he's the current owner with his partner Jennifer Renwick of uh, uh, Nature Photographers Network, and they, they also produce some incredible photography. Uh, Charlotte Gibb, another amazing photographer, can't wait to see you in February as well. Anton Everine, um, he produces the, uh, the awesome Arc Panel uh, Luminosity Mask software, so check, check out that. Uh, Laurie Berenson, uh, William Nurse, Ken Dono, uh, uh, great photographers. Uh, Danny LeFrancois, she, she does um, workshops up in Banff, so check out her stuff. Uh, James Bakavoy, uh, he has some amazing photography from uh, Hawaii. Matthias uh, Joland, he, he's actually getting ready to partner with uh, Sarah Marino and I on some workshops up in Norway. Uh, we have Richard Wong, he's a really great photographer in California. Uh, Zachary Smith, Frank Otto Peterson, Michael Rung, uh, all just really fantastic photographers. Uh, Gary Randall, um, he's a photographer in Oregon who does a lot of workshops and he's one of the funniest and nicest guys on the internet, I swear. Uh, Suzanne uh, Mathia, she does some amazing photography in Arizona and some workshops. Uh, Timothy Floyd, um, guys like a history book full of amazing information around landscape photography. And uh, Jason Clardy, uh, thank you guys so much. Um, if you want to see and support the work of the people that are supporting the podcast, I have links to everyone's website as much as I could find over on uh, the liner notes. Um, actually, not in the liner notes. It's on the, uh, if you go to mattpainphotography.com and click on podcast, you'll see a link to all of their websites in that page. All right. Well, let's talk about who we have coming up next on the show. Uh, we have Maria Grace. She is a search engine optimization expert. She's going to be sharing all of her secrets to getting visitors to your website. We have Jeff Bartlett, a really fantastic photographer from Canada. Uh, Michael Strickland. Uh, Jonathan Tilly. He's a personal brand marketing expert. Toby Harriman. He's a he's a aerial photographer uh, living in Alaska and San Francisco. Uh, Luca Senko, a photographer based in Slovenia. Brenda Tharp, a photographer from Sonoma County, California, and and May, Sh I'm gonna probably butcher this, but May Shu, Shu, yeah, she'll she'll correct me. She is a photographer based in Denver, Colorado. All right, well that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week. <laughs>